This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. We're right in the middle of the summer, due to the coronavirus pandemic in the United States and other countries around the world, continues to spread with little end in sight. What's a better time than now to talk about bioethics? Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Joe Stravato. Joe is an assistant professor of philosophy and associate director of the Institute for Ethics and Public Affairs at San Diego State University. His teaching and writing focus primarily on the intersection of philosophy of disability and bioethics. We spoke in late April of this year after we were both on Ethics Talk, a podcast by the AMA Journal on Ethics. Joe will describe how he got into philosophy and bioethics, what bioethics is, and some of his recent writing on the impact of the pandemic on disabled people. Are you ready? Away we go. So, Joe, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I am so excited to be here, Alice. This is uh, this is really exciting. I've been a, a fan of yours for quite some time, and uh, so I'm I'm really really pleased to be here and uh, have this exchange with you. I've been a follower of your work and your wife's work for quite a while, and you know the two of us were. On another podcast very recently, and it was really wonderful that uh, we were both kind of talking about the coronavirus and, you know, clearly uh, bioethics is in the forefront now, and I thought it would be just a wonderful chance to kind of do a deeper dive, uh, not only your work, but more about bioethics in general, because I think we say the word bioethics, but a lot of us, including myself, don't really know what that entails. I don't really know what that means. So it's perfect kind of a convergence of having you uh, on the podcast today. So, uh, you know, you're an assistant professor in philosophy at San Diego State University. And I was wondering, how did you become interested in philosophy? Sure. Um, so I, I started um, undergraduate at a liberal arts college thinking that um, I would probably uh, major in history and become a high school history teacher. That was sort of my my plan. Actually, for a while, I wanted to be a radio disc jockey, too. Um, but uh, I, I realized a high school history teacher might be a little bit more of a stable lifestyle. And so I was going to go for that. That was sort of the, the original plan. And so when I started undergrad... I um, uh, a series of courses um, in 
European civilization is kind of like a minor. I didn't wasn't really completely sold on a major yet, and so I figured I'd I'd test the waters and do sort of a variety of humanities kinds of courses um, with a, a Euro Civ minor. And so that was my first uh, entry into philosophy um, because we started with the ancients and uh, in that in that program and. Uh, so we were reading the ancient historians like Herodotus and and uh, the ancient poets um, like Homer, but then we also did uh, some ancient Greek philosophy um, and did uh, Aristotle and Plato. And so that was sort of my my discovery of uh, of philosophy, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I you know I already uh, really enjoyed um, reading and writing uh, argumentative kinds of. Uh, papers, um, and so I, uh, I quickly figured out that uh, you know, hey, this is this is going to teach me how to do it uh, really carefully, and so um, I switched uh, over to a philosophy major um, during my sophomore year, uh, and during my junior year, I took uh, a bioethics class um, for the first time in the philosophy department where I went to school. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I, I really enjoyed, um, doing bioethics because it seemed to matter in a way to me that a lot of other, uh, philosophical discourse didn't seem to really speak to my experience all that much, have a huge impact on my life or the lives of people that I care about. Um, and so bioethics was different. It was fun, but it was also high stakes. And so um, that's uh, sort of how I started doing uh, bioethics way back then. Um, and at the same time, I actually took a, uh, a course in medical anthropology. Um, and that uh, was sort of my awakening uh, when it came to disability issues. Um, because it was in my medical anthropology class that I read a book. I don't know if you've ever uh, read it or seen it called The Body Silent by Robert Murth Murphy. Um, and so um, I, had a, I had a great uh, professor for medical anthro that, that assigned that book. And it was just a, a world changer for me. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, the first bit of disability studies that I had ever uh, encountered. Um, and it introduced me to the social model and uh, got me thinking about... Um, disability as a social thing and as a cultural thing and as a political thing and not just sort of as a, a medical deficit. Um, and so it was, it was weird because I, I read that book at, um, during the same time period of the same semester, even that I was taking my first bioethics course. And so <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was really uh, fortunate because it gave me the ability to, look more critically at what I was studying in the bioethics course um, to sort of have, uh, you know, in, in my back pocket, all of this uh, social science talking about disability as much more complicated than just, uh, you know, an impairment or a medical thing. Um, and so I, I realized that, well, you know, disability studies uh, had something to say that was important when it came to uh, bioethics. And so that's sort of very early on, I sort of became interested in doing both of these things at once. You know, for those who don't know too much about bioethics and, you know, I'm somebody who's constantly trying to learn and understand it, I feel like I live it. So like I, 
there's some aspects that are very personal to me, but uh, what is bioethics for somebody who just doesn't really know much about it? How would you kind of describe it? Sure. Um, so I like what you just said about living it, um, because I, I think that um, whether we know it or not, we all live it. Um, anytime we encounter uh, the institutions of biomedicine, uh, we are living bioethics. And I think that that's more uh, frequent of an experience for disabled people than for many others. Um, and and so what I what I mean by that is uh, so so bioethics is the analysis of moral problems that uh, arise within the life sciences, for instance, uh, medicine, biology, um, even uh, ecological research and and practice. Um, and so what uh, what's important about bioethics or what's distinctive about bioethics, I think, is that it's uh, it's an attempt to say something, normative. Um, and so unlike other academic disciplines that sort of describe the world, um, like something like medical anthropology or medical sociology, um, or even something like psychology that sort of describes something about human behavior or human culture, um, bioethics tends to uh, make prescriptions. And so not just sort of say how things are, but rather how things should be. Um, and so that's sort of what's what's distinctive about it. It it, uh, it gets into um, the the moral questions um, and doesn't sort of try to become uh, sort of a, a neutral um, observer about uh, some of these things. We're talking in the late April of 2020, and we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, I was wondering if you could tell me about some of your recent writing and, you know, advocacy on the ethical issues on healthcare rationing as hospitals and states have had to contend with, you know, restricted guidelines on how to allocate resources and capacity. Could you describe to about a, kind of a series of blog posts you've been writing? So I had to learn quickly. <laughs> I, um, I, had, I had done um, some work uh, in uh, thinking about distributive justice within bioethics. Um, I have one publication about uh, organ uh, sales uh, arguing against uh, sort of having a market for kidneys. Um, but uh, most of my stuff was sort of in other areas of, of bioethics. And so um, triage sort of wasn't sort of my, my, uh, my bread and butter. Um, and uh, I had no intention of ever it being my bread and butter. Um, but uh, like you said, we live bioethics as disabled people. And uh, so when all of this started going down um, and I started reading about the reports in Italy, um, honestly, my motivation was fear. 
um, I, I started thinking about myself and my friends and our uh, vulnerability um, to uh, these uh, triage guidelines. And so I thought to myself, well, I, I better uh, give myself a crash course in triage ethics and try to say something useful. <laughs> and so that's, uh, I, I knew that I had, you know, the, the, the privilege to be able to be heard, to be able to get uh, my writing into some of these spaces that it's, that it's appeared uh, in the past few weeks. But it took me a while to get there, not only because there was sort of some, some reading and thinking that I had to do um, about triage ethics, but also just because I was scared, honestly. Um, you know, I had a, uh, you know, I hope she doesn't mind me talking about it, but I had a, a pretty intense series of conversations with my spouse, Leah, um, where, you know, she was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta get a grip. You're really, you're really too dark on Facebook these days. <laughs> Just because, you know, I was really, uh, really scared of the virus and scared of the uh, implications for, uh, you know, if things uh, do go badly in the U.S. and we do need to make uh, choices about who gets care. Um, you know, it was, it was a tough time, um, especially at the beginning where we didn't know, um, you know, that the, the response uh, to flatten the curve would uh, be effective. I was able over a few days to sort of, uh, I don't know, refocus some of that into, into some, some writing um, that you're, that you're referring to. And I, I guess um, the, the three blog posts that, uh, that I have out right now, the first um, deals with quality of life as a um, criterion for triage um, and argues against the idea that we should use quality of life as a criterion uh, for, for triage. In other words, we shouldn't uh, deprioritize someone for medical treatment and withhold care to give it to someone else because we think that that person that we're deprioritizing doesn't have uh, a good enough uh, life to save, um, that they you know, uh, will still be suffering even if we treat them for COVID-19. And so we ought to uh, prioritize someone who is going to be able to have a a uh, higher level of well-being if they survive. Now, this isn't something that's usually this explicit within triage protocols. And so um, what that essay tried to do was discuss how quality of life considerations can be dressed up in other costumes within triage protocols. And so instead of talking about things like, well, uh, you know, we aren't going to save this person's life because they, uh, you know, they have X, Y, Z disability and everybody knows that people with X, Y, Z disability are miserable. Um, and so we shouldn't, uh, you know, bother. Um, instead of that, they say something more along the lines of, well, we don't want to def define survival as just mere biological survival. We don't want to just sort of save anybody who's just going to be alive after the treatment. We want to make sure that we are saving people that are going to be healthy after they're treated. And we want to, to define survival as healthy survival. Um, and that was um, actually included in 
um, the uh, triage guidelines that came out of the University of Washington um, that uh, prompted some of the legal complaints that we saw early on. And so my argument there was that, well, all this stuff about health um, is really just trying to smuggle in quality of life. And then the, uh, the, the second essay um, looked at uh, a distinction that I tried to make between um, wasting uh, resources um, and being inefficient with resources. And so, uh, in other words, I tried to argue that you can coherently say within ethics that we ought not to use scarce resources like ventilators on people that have a very low likelihood of surviving um, because that might be wasteful, right? We don't want to uh, use events for uh, someone who might not, we are fairly certain, won't survive because you could be using that vent for someone else that, you know, will survive. Um, and so we might think of that as wasteful, but a lot of times in um, the bioethics literature and to some extent, even in the protocols, that idea is conflated with uh, a related idea that if what we're trying to do is maximize um, the use of our, our resources, then not only should we not waste them on people that won't survive, but we should also try not to be inefficient with them um, by using them on disabled people who will need more of them in order to survive, okay? And so I tried to say, well, inefficiency is different than waste, and that we can justify uh, inefficiency um, in that really the entire disability rights movement is an argument for inefficiency as a, uh, a justifiable thing to do when it means that we can create more equity and equality. And so in, in other words, you know, it might be inefficient to uh, remodel a building to install the ramp and install the elevator, or it might be inefficient to uh, redesign a curriculum to accommodate different learning styles. Or it might be inefficient to hire the sign language interpreter. But that uh, isn't an argument against doing it. <laughs> and so when it comes to ventilators, we ought to think in the, same, in the same way, that we ought to allow for some inefficiency um, and allow for uh, people that might need more time on the vent to recover to have that time and not think of it as the same thing as wasting the resource by giving it to someone that won't recover. And then the, the last piece um, was an argument that was inspired by uh, my colleague, philosopher of disability, Shelley Tremaine, um, who has a great book out uh, right now from University of Michigan Press um, called um, Foucault and the Feminist Philosophy of Disability. And uh, she um, argued uh, on Facebook and other social media platforms um, that the entire um, conversation around triage 
was something that we needed to try to refocus on instead thinking about and using, especially as bioethicists, using our political capital and social capital to try and expand medical capacity so that we won't have to triage. So uh, in other words, um, in that piece, I tried to offer some very concrete ways that we as a society might be able to uh, do a better job of minimizing our need for triage, um, including things like um, a a national shelter-in-place order and uh, not um, lifting shelter-in-place orders too soon to try to flatten the curve, or using the Defense Production Act to try to uh, make sure that um, uh, enough um, PPE and enough um, ventilators were being produced, but also distributed to the places that that need them most. Um, And so if there's things like that that we can do as a society, these are bioethical problems, right? Um, And so bioethicists, if what we're really concerned with is saving the largest number of lives, um, we shouldn't only be talking about triage because you're going to save a lot more lives by pushing hard to try to expand medical capacity and flatten the curve than you are by formulating a triage protocol that uh, is, is efficient in the use of the limited resources. I'm sort of curious about your own thoughts about how these conversations on healthcare rationing and just the pandemic in general is really a reflection of, you know, power and systemic oppression, especially, you know, racism and ageism and ableism, because they all are kind of, you know, intertwined as we've seen with, you know, the latest reports about how you know, black and brown communities are, you know, unsurprisingly disproportionately impacted, save with indigenous communities. How are these kind of reflections or just, you know, tributary about the way our society is organized? I I think that one thing that that comes um, immediately to mind is uh, the idea that um, some people are disposable in order to try to keep the economy going, right? It's not an uncommon sentiment, right? Um, but from the beginning of all of this COVID-19 pandemic, we heard a lot of people that would say things like, well, you know, don't worry. Uh, it's only uh, the elderly or people with uh, serious medical conditions that will die. And it's like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, you're talking about, you know, me and my family and my friends, like this is, this is not okay. Uh, you know, it's not an okay way to, to frame this issue. And so I, I think that those are sort of representative um, of the idea that, well, if you're, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a really um, durable idea that's been embedded in, Uh, our culture for a very long time that, you know, if you're not productive enough, if 
you're not, uh, you know, uh, able to uh, produce within the economy enough, um, then you're not worth saving. Um, and so if you're elderly, you're not going to be working. Or if you're sick, then, you know, the assumption is that you're not going to be uh, taking care of yourself. You're going to be taking resources from others. Um, and so this is just sort of another way of framing um, the same conversations that we're having about these triage protocols, really. You know, whose life is uh, worth making sacrifices for? And so I, I, I think that um, that is definitely bound up with ableism and racism and ageism um, and, and all of the isms, because these are all ways of identifying people whose lives are less important than uh, the, the gross domestic product. And, and we've seen that uh, time and time again. We've seen evidence of that. I think my last question for you is, you know, what do you hope people will learn as we come out out of this pandemic, especially knowing that there will be future ones? So, you know, what is your hope that people will at least come away with by experiencing it coming out of this? Yeah, um, I hope people will, will, um, get really angry at the lack of social supports in our country. Um, I, I think that this has put into sharp relief the the terrible state of the safety net um, in, in our country. Um, and and that uh, you know we need to we need to do um, a lot more. Um, I, I, I think that it, when it comes to things like single payer health care um, and and the idea, that uh, you know, lots of people are are uh, losing their jobs right now. We're not working, um, and and so it's becoming pretty clear how um, how fragile employer based healthcare is. Um, that there'll be uh, more openness toward uh, universal healthcare that doesn't rely on you having a certain kind of job. Um, so I think that's one thing that I hope comes out of it, but also just things like, um, you know, just basic income guarantee um, and, and other sorts of uh, safety net features um, that people will realize that this doesn't have to be a choice between your livelihood and, uh, you know, the, the lives of, those that you love, right? Um, with adequate safety net put in place by the government, um, you know, we can, we can have both. Um, of course, that's going to take some political will that we have to build to do that. Um, and, and so there's going to be a lot of pushback from, you know, folks that uh, have a lot to lose in order to redistribute wealth in these ways. Um, but uh, nevertheless, hopefully people will be more open to that after this experience. Well, thank you, Joe. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I just hope it, you know, it prompts people to you know, explore a little bit more about bioethics. And you know, it's clearly 
except the, that everybody lives, but I feel like, you know, especially for disabled folks, we, you know, we really live it, like, every day, just to be enmeshed in the uh, medical industrial complex. So I just, I really appreciate uh, all that you do and explaining things for us. Well, I really appreciate all that all that you're doing and do. Um, you know, your your uh, your podcast and, and your other uh, efforts are just amazing. Um, you know, I I, I, uh, I really uh, am am uh, admire what you're up to, and uh, uh, I guess we're just having a love fest over here. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project. Did all that community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes and twenty texture strips are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Joe on my website. The audio producer for this episode is me, Alice Wong. Introduction by Latif McLeod. The music by Vulture Sports Team. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more to buy joint to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp that's p-a-t r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp thanks for listening this is you on the internet bye